Hello, I'm Donna Edda, and this is Interested, a podcast that brings you stories from brilliant minds to inspire love, health, and growth. Nigel Marshall is a spiritual seeker. He has been practicing Ashtanga yoga for 19 years and is an authorized level two Ashtanga yoga teacher. He is a senior teacher at Pure Yoga Hong Kong with more than 10 years of teaching experience. He is honest, insightful, yet vulnerable at the same time. He describes himself as a difficult individual with a difficult body. Nigel's teaching style is influenced by his own patient struggle to overcome his challenges. His compassionate and caring persona has made him one of the most sought-after Ashtanga yoga teachers in Hong Kong. He is a highly disciplined individual on and off the mat. He works hard to bring out the best in his students by creating a safe, inspiring and totally secure environment in which they can transform themselves. Please help me welcome Nigel Marshall. Hi Nigel, thank you for coming. Hi Donna. So today I want to talk about yoga and the idea is to explore how do we find ourselves in the practice. Let's start with your morning routine. What does it look like? So I wake up at 4.30, six days a week. Saturday's my day off, so I don't have to stress. I start with coconut oil. Okay, you what know? did you do, pulling? Yeah, so oh. without fail every day. So put a mouthful of the coconut oil in, do the oil pulling, um, whilst I'm doing the other ablutions and whatever else needs to be done, right? And then clean the teeth, very large glass of water or maybe two room temperature in the winter that means boil the kettle and then um, it's time for the turmeric and ginger and lemon juice an inch cube of ginger chopped up boiling yeah. water on the top and then squeeze a lemon or, or if it's a big lemon half a lemon fresh lemon and then a teaspoon of turmeric mix it up you've got this bright orange mixture it's pretty disgusting it's pretty sour you know and drink that so the reason for that is that it's, well, it's a number of things. It's anti-inflammatory. It's the basic thing for me. Right. So, you know, a lot of the problems that we have with the yoga is we, today we feel stiff or today, you know, our little aches and pains are even more painful than usual. So I think that having an anti-inflammatory drink every morning is sort of maybe reducing that a little bit, which is in, in, in those substances that yeah. are helpful, you know, antibacterial and so on. Because I, inevitably I'm going to probably drink some coffee during the course of the morning. So it's also like against that kind of really acid, you know, because right. it's very alkaline. That's a very alkaline drink to have. We talked about my raw chocolate. Remember with, oh, that smells really good. Right? Yes. Wow. So that's pre-made. I mean, I wouldn't make that in the morning. So it's pre-made and I just, I've got a bigger box. And so I just chuck some in the small box, um, leave the house at 5.20 for the 5.30 ferry, cycle down the mountain. On the ferry, I start eating the chocolate. That's, so it's a boost. It's, you know, it's a milder version of coffee for me. So that's, and it's also got some proper calories in it and other properties. So, and I don't get on with strong coffee on an empty stomach in the morning. So this is a bit of a milder version, but still gives me enough of a stimulating boost. Yeah, that's it. Maybe I've packed a smoothie. Maybe I've packed some porridge in a pot, you know, for later. Um, so yeah, really boring stuff like that. What goes in your smoothie? The favorite is mango, pineapple, avocado, kale, a little bit of um, protein powder blended with coconut water and then some uh, mm. Thai coconut cream. So it's a thick orange, green, oh, delicious, sweet. 
do you put Yum ice thing. in it? Do you make it cold or you just have it? Though all of those fruits have been in the fridge, so it's cold enough. You know, so I might have a couple of mouthfuls before I teach. And then after I finish my practice, it would be possible for nice. me to give away easily 10% of my salary back to Pure for their wonderful products, <laughs> right? So it's a way of getting yeah. around that, you know, because that, that smoothie would cost probably, well, anyway. So it's a way of economizing a little bit, make my own smoothie. What is Ashtanga yoga? We can simplify it because this conversation could be for anybody who might not even be practicing okay. any form of yoga. It's a, said to be one of the more gymnastic styles of asana practice, of yoga practice, right? So, so it's very dynamic. It's very challenging. It's a practice that's always looking to improve you and become more and more challenging. I guess you never find a plateau, right? Mm. You always, you or your teacher is looking to like make you work a bit harder and, and get a bit more sophisticated. And that doesn't necessarily mean new postures, but to get better at what you're doing. It's, uh, okay, we're talking in an ideal, it's a daily practice or, or a six days a week or a five days yeah. a week practice where you would aim to do that. You may fail. Again, in an ideal, you'd come to a class. You can do it, but I have to do it by myself for 10 of the 12 months a year. But ideally, you're going to have company and you're going to have uh, a teacher that's adequate, that's good at holding space and, you know, doing the right thing. You're going to do it in the morning for sure. That was no, not for sure, but ideally you do it in the morning. Yeah, before Why is you that? before you've eaten before that. So before you've consumed really anything, food, too many impressions, the day's activities are mm. yet to really really come into you. So you're somewhat on empty. So for example, the other day a student wrote to me and said, "Oh, I've messed my back up. You know, I and I, how did it happen? Inevitable question. Oh, I did an evening practice. You know, like well, so." What happens in the evening, our body is in a different situation to the morning, and we, we can't really trust that situation. Once we're used to practicing in the morning, and we know the typical level of availability in terms of range of motion and so on, and it's going to be different in the evening. So there's, I think there's like more kind of honesty about what we, what's really available to us. So where we're stiff, let's say we're going to be more stiff in the morning, but it's a good thing in a way okay. that gives us the real, real material to work with. Whereas the evening practice, it's a bit of a fantasy, you know, because we've moved around all day and stuff like that. But yeah, but we've also accumulated a lot of food and we've also accumulated a lot of impressions. So in the morning, I feel we're much more on empty and, and it's much more difficult. Mm. You know, when we're fighting our, our fatigue, our, our sleepiness, maybe our boredom, our desire for breakfast. So there's a lot to work with in the morning. What is Ashtanga Yoga? So it's, a, it's, a, it's giving ourselves a daily a difficult daily task, you know, and ideally to me, you know, once we've achieved that and we've left and we've showered preferably and we've gone to work, you know, the hardest thing that could ever happen to us has already happened. You know, the rest of the day is easy after our challenging practice, I think. Patabi Joyce, for his faults, said that Ashtanga Yoga, one of the many things he said was that Ashtanga Yoga is basically a concentration practice. It is. I mean, it's very difficult to drive yourself along, mm. you know, and it's not for everybody. We like to be told what to do. We like that constant reassurance. We like to do things with others. A lot of people have an issue with, you know, like doing stuff on their own. People don't like to go out for dinner on their own or go to the movies on their own or do anything on their own. Whereas Ashtanga Yoga is a bit like a meditation retreat where you, you may not be alone, but you're cultivating the idea that you are by yourself. Mm. You know, so you at the meditation retreat, you don't talk to anyone. You probably don't really look at anybody or you don't want to you shouldn't be looking at well you shouldn't be trying to draw somebody out of their private space right you know you should respect their desire for their 
own quietude and it's a bit like so you wouldn't deliberately distract somebody in in the ashtanga class would you you wouldn't you wouldn't say you know your practice looks great or crap or whatever you wouldn't do that you wouldn't ask them if they watch something on tv or you cultivate the idea that you're on your own even though you take huge encouragement from all the others around you by a kind of osmosis right somehow stuff's coming up into you from the others you know even if as we said before even if you didn't get an adjustment it's very encouraging environment to be there but it is difficult to drive yourself along boredom impatience hunger that desire to really get into the meat of the day to get to my workplace and to achieve or whatever it is we think we're going to do the tasks that we got that huge list must get done and when we show up every day does it get easier it gets in the system so i practice every day when i'm on the designated days Mm. i almost never skip it almost never happens anymore though my practice might be reduced i'll always do something does it so it just gets in the system where it becomes an irresistible force and and it's already started like the day before you know i won't do this activity because it will affect my practice negatively i won't have that huge meal at night because it will affect my practice negatively Mm. or i won't undertake some huge physical activity you know because it will affect i'm already thinking in a way and i'm or if i'm going to do those things i'm very aware that they will have that negative impact and therefore i'm already budgeting for that negative impact you know like so once a year i go to clock and flap and i drink a lot of beer and there's a price to pay my practice will be crap you know i won't practice for the duration i'll be enjoying the bands enjoying a few beers dancing and whatnot and acting like a fool and and then i know that that's it was worth it but usually my desire is to get the practice done so yeah, it becomes easier in a way, but it's still very challenging. It's still, you know, some, some days it's just a real drag. When you say it's worth it, what do you mean? It's, come on, a night out with your buddies and all those vices sound really, really fun. And so you say waking up at 4.30 in the morning and practicing and torturing yourself is worth it. Yeah. So I mean, how can we understand that mindset? Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Um, it's a hard sell. I suppose you have to be looking for something. You, 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 you have to have an awareness that something within me isn't enough. Something more is needed. Some method is needed. You know, something, there's some kind of, without sounding morose or anything, there's a kind of a inadequacy, that I, I, something that needs to be addressed. I mean, if you didn't feel that, you wouldn't, you wouldn't need to do it. If you were already like a perfectly functioning human being, then you wouldn't need to do anything. You wouldn't need to do all this stuff. But most of us feel that something isn't enough. Mm. you know and I don't mean that I really don't mean that in a depressed way you know like life is is not I'm not satisfied with life it's not in that realm really I have a belief based on a certain amount of research admittedly biased research that hundreds of thousands of years ago when human beings were already human beings we were the same we had the same capacity as we do now I mean the same mental emotional capacity and we lived around the equator in jungles it was that's the environment that produced us we were in our natural environment so eating the foods that are natural to us which i personally believe were probably more or less vegan grasses berries you know maybe a handful of ants so the question is what kind of a person was that that was living in that natural environment you know probably a very 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 superior person in terms of their physical abilities and their and stability not this wreck of a confused strange poisoned mm you know, distorted, distracted, contemporary person that most of us are, right? And so I think that a very strong daily routine like Ashtanga is an attempt for us to recreate that original human being 
it, it takes a very, very, very strong disciplined physical, mental, emotional discipline, I think, to give us the feeling that maybe we're heading in the right direction. We're making ourselves into a natural human being, you know, as opposed to these aberrations that we, are, we most of us are. Having read certain books, um, Tony Wright's book, um, Left in the Dark, totally spelled that out for me. He didn't suggest necessarily, I don't remember he suggested yoga, I don't recall him suggesting Ashtanga yoga, but it was clear to me that he's a scientist, a researcher and so on. From what he suggested, it seemed to me like, yeah, I, I think I'm doing the right thing here for myself. And, and if you ask, and this is very interesting, if you ask a lot of the students, why do you practice? They don't know. I'm talking about the people that come daily and, and, yeah. and beat themselves up every morning, apparently, right? As it looks from the outside. You ask them, why do you do this? They don't know. But it feels right. Like I said, there's, they know, I think we know that there's something isn't quite right in us. And this very strong practice is going to produce in us this feeling, okay, I feel grounded, I feel more centered, I feel like this is, I can create a better version of myself with a practice like this. And it wouldn't have to be a shtanger, obviously, but it needs to be a self-practice. I is think it that's measurable? crucial. Most of us can't articulate that feeling, right? That's right, we can't articulate it. So I'm trying to articulate it based on 20 odd almost years of practice and more than 10 years of teaching mm. and then reading various books on, in this realm. So I can sort of articulate what I think is going on, but I don't really know what's going on. But I know that on my first day, it felt right. It, something was switched off. What was on. the contrast? So before the practice and after your pr first practice? You know, I was a seeker, you know, so that can produce a, a skewed view of what's, what's happening because you're so grateful to get the thing that you mm. thought. But anyway, my friend Simon and I, he said, it wasn't even my idea. He said, have you ever tried yoga? I hadn't ever thought of trying it. And yet it was thinking about it, it was the ideal thing for me to try at that time. So we went, we didn't know anything. And we found this class and we didn't know what it was, Ashtanga yoga. That was the class that was happening before work. So we just showed up and it was Ashtanga, you know, and it kicked our asses. And the funny thing is during the actual class, I like, this is awful, this is so difficult, you know, and I thought I was fit and it was so difficult for me and for Simon. But then when I came out of the Shavasana, there was a different thing. Something had happened in my mind, in my being. There was a, a new feeling in me uh, and it was so obvious that this has to be pursued. Wow. Yeah. And it was, was that clear to yeah, you? Yeah, it was, it was remarkable. I've said it so many times, it was love at first sight, really. How yeah. old were you then? Well, so this is almost 20 years ago. So I was in my 30s, almost mid 34 or whatever, something like that. So, so yeah, you didn't start when you were no, in your, no. you know, twenties. No, and, and I'd been a, I'd been a bad boy. You know, I'd been a rock and roller. <laughs> I'd done everything you're not supposed to do with my body, mind, and mm. I spoke to the teacher after. I said, "Well, that was amazing." You know, so what do we do then? How do we progress? What do we do? She said, "Well, we just we do this every day." And I was like, "Wow, okay." You and know. then you showed up every day. Yeah, pretty much. I had, I had another commitment that time. I was training for a marathon at that time, which required me to be running in the early morning four mornings a week so I only had three mornings a week for yoga so I did three mornings a week and then when the marathon was run which was quite soon after that as soon as I recovered from the marathon I was immediately six days a week yeah and I knew I knew that's what would happen it was just exactly the right thing for me I'd been reading Gurdjieff and Ospensky do you know who they are? No. so uh, Gurdjieff he was a mystic that was began to teach around 1910 maybe and was teaching and then he died in I think 1950 thereabouts 
he became a little bit famous in Europe. Mm. Uh, some people, he's, he was called at that time, that he, people said that he was a charlatan and it's still said that he was a fake and everything. But I mean, some of the things he's written and said, there's no denying that he knew what he was doing. He studied Sufism and he went to the East and tried on a number of different disciplines, came back to Europe with a synthesis of everything he'd learned, he called it the fourth way, because it's traditionally three ways. He said he's going to synthesize all three of those ways and make a, make a fourth way, he called it the fourth way, started teaching. One of his principal students was a man called Ospensky, who was a, another Russian, who was a much more of a sort of scientist type of guy, I guess, more formal. So they stand in relation to each other a bit like Socrates and Plato. So the one was the genius, the other one was the guy that wrote it down. So Ospensky coherently wrote down Gurdjieff's crazy message, and it's very understandable. Ospensky's book is um, In Search of the Miraculous, which is the book he wrote about those times. So I read that, and that created in me this idea that I needed to find... They talk about methods in there that are very, 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 very difficult, that, that produce a new kind of person or maximize our capacity, which is very much underused, obviously. Some of the methods are described, and you read them, and you just think, no, this is just, I'm not going to do that. And, and plus, I would need to be in part of that group, and where is that group, and right. so on. And then out of nowhere, Ashtanga came, and it's, wow, this is challenging so enough. So you read this before you found Ashtanga? Yeah, I'd been reading, I'd been studying uh, philosophy at the uh, School of Economic Science in London. Some of their philosophies were based in the fourth way, but their methods are very, very soft at that school. They, they offer the information, but they're not these really pushy kind of guru type of like Gurdjieff was. It's a very mild, very civilized little society that they present. And I learned a lot. Right. But then Ashtanga felt like the thing that was going to kick my ass into shape. Who is a teacher that influenced you the most? Since we're on the subject of the fourth way, Gurdjieff Uspensky and the School of Economic Science, there was a teacher at the School of Economic Science. The School of Economic Science offers a part-time, usually evening course of philosophy. And if you've ever been in London uh, just prior to the beginning of term, in the tube, they'll, they'll always rent a space and they'll always have a poster that would usually just say, like, philosophy in huge writing, you know, interested in philosophy or interested in... Also, they offer a thing called natural law economics, just a different way of understanding how society functions. You see these posters and... The school's popular. They have a lot, of, a lot of people come to those first one or two terms. So a buddy and I saw the poster and we just went once. It was about 92, maybe, having seen the poster. As terms progressed, I mean, so the first term was very, you know, like 60 people, and then the next term maybe 30, and the next term maybe 20, and then it boils down to the people that are really interested as years go by. I was there right. for years, maybe five. It boils down to a hardcore, and then members from other groups sort of combine and then... These are the people that are going to take it seriously. And so one of those tutors that we had was a guy called Alan. Uh, he was just a really cool guy. And um, very, very, um, he was a rocker like me from another generation. He saw Jimi mm. Hendrix at the Marquee Club in London in the 60s. Right. So he, he could regale me with stories of that kind of era. I went to his house once and there was a picture of him with very long hair and his long beard and his flares in 1972 or something. Wow. Looking like a member of Genesis or something. And, you know... <laughs> Alan was just super cool and so he kind of took me under his wing because we had shared this love of music and so he was like me like he hadn't had much of a formal education but he'd taken it upon himself to educate himself 
he was very interested in reading and very interested in self-study and mm. he'd found the school much prior to me and he said to me this this has been my education this school you know this philosophy school where they teach things like ethics how old is that school i mean when did it start it started in about 90 it started in the great depression oh. it started then it started with, uh, between the wars there was a guy called mclaren young guy who couldn't understand why there was famine especially in ireland why were people dying of starvation when there was so much money around how come what is going on that there's there's this huge wealth in europe you know this oligarchy with this massive amount of wealth and yet people mm. are starving what the hell's going on as a young man he saw answers and he started his little discussion of economics club with his buddies and that grew and they started this thing which kind of more or less became natural law economics which is trying to discover what the natural laws of nature are that govern society are there such laws and if there are such laws shouldn't they be obeyed and then how could they be obeyed and how do they compare with what's actually happening in society this is a very interesting thing right so they did that for a while and then mclaren realized at some point that if you're going to understand how society functions then you need to understand how the members of society functions in other words you have to understand the man the person the human the man or the woman right yeah. so then this they kept the economic study but it became much more about studying the person which is philosophy it was going for a long time and then in the broadly speaking they found ospensky gurdjieff dr rolls was another student of gurdjieff they began to incorporate him into the school um, so then it became more of a fourth way school um, and then in the 60s they found the maharaja mahesh yogi the very famous indian guru type beaming face big beard friend of the beatles who came to london and, and taught about meditation and they, yep. so then the emphasis shifted into it being a advaita vedanta indian philosophy school and it kind of stayed with that and then right. this quote that i gave you before of the shankachari the former shankachari of northern india which is shankacharya shantananda saraswati and if you see him if you see a picture of him he's a very incredible looking man he's just this is a real deal you look at him and you go wow okay this this knowing can you repeat that quote again just for the so the, the well his there's so many brilliant things he said but this the thing that i referred to was when he said what you call work i call play and what you call play i call idleness it's a really wonderful mm, quote yes. it's a really interesting it makes you makes you does make you question like my attitude to my job and my so called leisure activities you know to what extent am I pissing my life away you know because we're all basically involved in that to some degree or other with yeah. damn phones and so on we're going to die eventually so what are we going to do with this life eh? yeah are you going to dedicate it to idleness or are you going to dedicate it to some other thing or so, so going back to Alan so then Alan was one of the tutors there so Alan some of the tutors were a bit it was very they were very professorial and and I respected them and they were admirable people but then Alan was like one of the lads he was funny fun. <laughs> you know he was fun you know and when the retreats started when i started joining kicking and screaming they dragged me to some retreats he would drive me like one of them was in leicester they had a big house old country home in leicester a huge estate more or less he would offer to drive me there and we would drive up playing music full blast on the motorway and having a laugh having a scream you know so he could do both uh he could have, we could have real fun and yet he was very profound and he introduced a lot of stuff to me that i would never have imagined about that time 99 i had a spontaneous pneumothorax the the right lung collapsed suddenly it happens spontaneous pneumothorax oh, wow. so 
I found myself in hospital for six weeks. Well, Alan, I don't even know how he knew. He, he came to visit me in hospital a couple of times. I mean, just a really nice guy and sat with me and talked with me and made me laugh. I've had a lot of teachers in this realm. He sticks out because he was, he just went that extra, you know, to be, to be friendly, to be a real person to me, not just a tutor, but somebody that was like really loving and really, you know, a nice guy. I also so. love the contrast because when I think of deep and profound teachers, they're always really serious. So he's not serious and at I all. And I always have to act proper and be as, behave a certain way, right? Yeah, well, but so you see, like we're, all, we're all acting. So Alan could act. So he, Alan could stand in front of 70 members of the school at one of these retreats and be very proper and be very precise and, and say some really profound stuff. And then when it's me and him in the car, you know, he's a laugh. I remember we drove back from one of the retreats from Leicester and there was like a, one of the much more senior, elderly, this, this old lady in the back of the car. He's playing like Electric Ladyland by Jimi Hendrix, the album, which is a very far out album, very, very loud. And I'm sitting in the passenger seat with him and I'm thinking, this poor woman must be freaking out. And at some point he turned around, he looked at her and he went, isn't Hendrix amazing, Marjorie? And she's like, you know, like <laughs> she's about 80 years old. She just sucked it up. She was just like, speechless. <laughs> That's Alan. He was uh, such a great guy. Not that he's necessarily the most profound person, but he just happens to be one of the first early teachers I got that really was, a, that could, yeah, could do both. Mm. He could be a really great guy and give a really important message that I never heard before. So the best message I got from him, and it's just come to mind, is he was so smart. He knew I was wayward because I had a foot in both camps for a long time. You know, I was partying and then... I'd come and do my thing at the school and I would think, gosh, if my philosophy chumps could see me at the weekend, oh boy, you know. So he knew that. So at some point, just about everybody in the class had volunteered because the whole, he, Alan's a volunteer. You volunteer for various aspects. It's a charity, you know. I hadn't volunteered and I didn't want to volunteer. I, I'm happy to receive but not necessarily give, you know. And one evening he said to me, Nigel, an opportunity has arisen. And like my heart sank and I thought, no, how can I get out of this? I can't get out of it. And he went, Saturday morning, the senior group, somebody's needed to serve the teas and the coffees and the biscuits to the real senior group. And I was like, oh my God, Saturday morning, serving tea to grannies, you know, like, <laughs> what about my Friday night? You know, I was dying. And it was like, I loved Alan so much. I went, mm, sure, you know. Wow. <laughs> so I showed up with considerable resentment there was no chance that I was going to say no to Alan. So I showed up with considerable resentment, thinking this is, I mean, it's unbelievable, you know, this is my time, you know, and I'm not even getting paid. And I've got to serve tea to grannies. It's going to be like, and the thing is, it was the most amazing experience. As soon as I was in the environment, I, my whole attitude changed and I immediately understood karma yoga. And those people were so, they'd been meditating, some of them for like 40 or 50 years. They were such sophisticated, beautiful people. It was such a, perfect natural exchange good morning young man i would like a cup of coffee please and it's just oh certainly you know and suddenly you're you're just it's just a beautiful and it's because no money's involved this is of course where i got the doing things for free you know making the films and so on it's such a brilliant arrangement where just simple kindness is the currency and and i loved it and then I looked forward to it. It, was, it was, could be painful if I did want to do something on a Friday, but I managed somehow, so I, so I did. And you continued volunteering. Mm. In fact, I even gave them my Sunday as well later. I went up to their home in Hampstead and I became the gardener at their, one of the gardeners on a Sunday with Alan. That's we were nice. like chopping down trees together and 
in this huge they had this huge grounds that they had that's beautiful yeah it was so these are significant turning points Mm. you know to take this kind of selfish hedonist and be exposed to a very very nice way of being and evolving into a different kind of a person and, and fitting into society in a way that's much more evolved and useful to me and them you know to me and society and so soon after this, you yeah, found Ashtanga. Yeah, so it was in that environment of having been nurtured by the school for a few years. I was into physical fitness already, mostly probably for vanity reasons, let's say. That Ashtanga, and then there's this seeking, there's this seeking a, a tough method that's mm. going to like bring out something better in me from the Ospensky, reading Ospensky and so on. Ashtanga just comes, it's just like, whoa, it ticks all the boxes. But then you started making trips to Mysore in India mm. regularly, mm. going to the Shala and really committing yourself to it. Can you tell us about your journey? What went through your head? Why did you choose to go the hard way? I mean, you could have just showed up to the classes locally. You didn't have to fly overseas. Well, I did that. I did show up to the classes locally. Happenstance is, is, has run my life. I'm not, a very, um, I'm not that methodical in a way. There's a lot of serendipity. So I've just described some, right? Most of these things I've described are accidents. In fact, when my friend Richard and I saw the philosophy poster, he saw it, I didn't see it. He said, should we go and what's philosophy? I said, I don't know what it is actually. And he went, should we go? So you see, it's like that with me. It's always like wow. that, it's just luck. When I discovered Ashtanga Yoga, it was just in that um, 9-11 period when everything was suddenly, like everything was different, right? And so the small business I was running was, was immediately plunged into very, very hard times. And then within six months, it was, it was just on the cards. We were finished. So I just found myself without responsibility, without anything holding me down. So we're up to about spring 2002, and it was just like, found the yoga, got some money, nothing to do. I, music industry is basically going down the toilet. There, it's not like I could just go and work for somebody anymore. Those days are finished. You know, It's going right. to be very difficult from now on. And I didn't want to do it anyway anymore. And so I just went traveling. And I went to India, you know, and... Um, because of your passion for yoga at that time. So you knew you wanted well, to go to I, India? Well, I knew... It's hard to say. I mean, I didn't, I didn't actually go to Mysore to practice on that first trip. I went to India to, to, to travel. And I hadn't formally had a particular interest in India, but having mm. studied at that school, the Advaita Vedanta, everything about Indian traditional philosophies and learning, that just got me interested in Indian, ancient Indian culture. So, for example, one of the things I did was I did the Shivananda Ashram Indian cultural course. 2001, 2002. And so that was, that's a really great course. What's that course about? Lots of asana, of course, lots of chanting. Not that fussed about chanting, but it's okay, you know. And then um, every day they would have different speakers come and talk about different kinds of traditional Indian parts of their culture. So it might be traditional Indian dancing, Indian martial arts, Indian painting, the medicine, of course, at Waita, with Danta, of course, the philosophy. it could be about, um, there was a talk about Wastu, which I've never even heard of, which is the, you could more or less say it's Indian feng shui. So it's the Indian science of architecture, design, proportion, etc. Somebody would give a talk, an interesting talk about one part of traditional Indian culture every day for two weeks. It was amazing. We'd go and visit temples and the, the temple would be explained to us how to appreciate all the different things and the, the different gods and their meanings and so on. It was a really amazing course. Wow. Yeah. So it was one of the things I did. That's the first time I did a Vipassana meditation retreat. It was on that same trip, three months in India. So that's like the silent meditation. Yeah. And how long did you do that for? That was 10 days. 10 that days, first right? One, yeah. Um, did you come out okay? Because everyone 
You've not, have you not tried it? I haven't tried it. I always have an excuse, my kids, whatnot, but it is definitely on my list of things to do. I, I love the idea. Yeah, I, I was a bit afraid of it. Why? It's one of these things, it's one of these very challenging things that presents itself to you, like let's say, you know, like parachute jumping, like you, you want to do it in a way, but you're also afraid of it, like what if there's an accident? So in the case of... <laughs> but there's no accident. <laughs> well, you know, no, but you leave me and, me and my thoughts alone without any distractions, without anyone to talk to. I might go insane, you know, mm. like what about my trauma? What if this stuff comes up for me and I can't handle it, you know, and maybe I have to face and, and that happened. How do you deal with that in those well, cases? Well, it didn't, okay, that, it didn't happen to me, but the other things did, like extreme boredom happened. And I had to face the fact that I'm, I, I've got my concentration is very, very poor, very, very, very easily distracted. So you understand the instructions. So let's say the instruction is follow the breath as it goes in and out of the nose, for example. Yes. So bring your attention to your nostrils and just watch the breath. So you understand the instruction went up, you can't do it. You can't follow the instructions. So you bring your attention to this point between the nose and then within one second, you're thinking about something else. Yeah. You know, and, and then minutes pass and you go, oh my God, I'm supposed to be bring the attention back again one second it's gone and it's very very frustrating and you hour after hour after hour after hour it's killing you you know so this was my problem i didn't i saw people go through emotional like horrors at that retreat i personally didn't have that i just had things like boredom and distraction and i also had physical pain from sitting it was early years of yoga so in the end of the latter part of that meditation retreat, i sat in a chair but i still got i still had an experience i still had a, a taste of like a real meditation ex experience let's call it like that did you walk away thinking this is one of those life-changing experiences yeah in a way going back a couple of steps a few years to the school of e economic science philosophy course they were teaching us meditation but i couldn't get on with it and i really tried and I, their method is is mantra based so they give mm. you a mantra and then silently you repeat it in the mind and because of my poor concentration or whatever, I just couldn't focus on the mantra. And it seemed pointless and meaningless almost to me. And also, I can even remember Alan's voice. Beginning of every meeting, we commence with meditation. And we'd sit there for half an hour, and I don't know what everybody else was doing, but I was just sitting there thinking about stuff, just drumming my finger, like, when's it gonna end, man? This is boring, right. you know? And trying, but I, I just couldn't do it. Whereas Vipassana doesn't offer a, a mantra it's a totally different thing to bring your attention to and, and it, it made much more sense to me so that was that was good that wasn't life-changing but at least that was a method that I thought okay I can see that this would be a better method for me uh, well what actually happened was on it was one of the last days my frustration was so profound it was so I was so I was in despair almost you know this just doesn't work it will never work you know, I can't meditate. I'm not a person that will ever be able to meditate. I'm kind of ruined, basically. I can see other people are kind of getting on with it. It'll never mm. work for me. And these kind of circular things, and you're supposed to be meditating. Why do you think it was negative crap? Try and bring the attention back to whatever the point of the meditation was. Again, massive distracting and very negative, destructive. I don't know what. Just go outside. You're in a darkened room, you know, in a sort of little mini pavilion. Yeah. Go outside. It's India. It's going to be a lovely day out there, you know go outside just have a walk around the grounds for five minutes come back start again which they told us that's a good idea sometimes okay it's to the point where you know you're in a cul-de-sac just go out look at the mountain come back in mm. so okay i'll go out for a walk I'll go out for a walk by some magic the meditation switched on let's say but it's again almost nothing i did i, I don't know what was the actual 
thoughts or ideas that led up to it, suddenly all thinking was very clearly seen. All of these thoughts, instead of being just this crowd of chatter and noise and jostling for attention, all thoughts were seen as merely thoughts, seen as merely messages that were coming up with their mostly garbage and then passing away, like in front of me. It was like a miracle. It's like, wait a minute. I could literally see them come up and then offer themselves oh, up wow. really vividly and pass away. Immediately to be replaced by something else. But it was seen for what it was. I was not the thinking. I was observing the thinking. So I'm not the thinking. I'm not the thinking. I'm the observer. You know, which is what people like Alan had always said all along. You know, be the observer. And I was like, that sounds great, but I don't know how to do that. You don't know how to do that. But if you allow yourself in a certain way, you naturally become the observer. So this is why I discovered this thinking was coming up and I was like, this is remarkable. I don't think I had that commentary. I just merely observed. And then the, one of the thoughts that came up was, you said you'd go out for a walk. And you forgot about it. Yeah. And, and even more kind of stupidly, I, I said to myself, yes, let's go for a walk. So I kind of walked out on this meditative experience, I thought. And I remember getting up, walking out, coming to the threshold of this little pavilion room or whatever, going outside and that's when I had this incredible moment and it was like an explosion of nature so I've been in the dark it's a beautiful day in India in this beautiful grounds and I just remember this tree and the sunlight coming through these leaves that were like shining and sparkling it was like a gift from nature it was like this incredible total communion with nature it was just mm. like an unbelievable perfect connection that lasted for a few moments and then what happened was I went wow you know it should always be like this and of course as soon as I claimed it it wow. went it disappeared and I became the normal but it doesn't matter because for that experience that perhaps lasted a minute all told from when it when I'm sitting on my chair and so on and so on and coming outside I was in total connection I was observing nature as it really is more or less thoughts come up they're not me and then this incredible connection with nature momentarily. So yeah, it was life-changing, you know. I'll never forget that. Is there something that you can recreate? So, yeah, so it's not just a one-off fluke. So that was a one-off. So that was 2002 or whatever. Now that experience, I wanted to recreate that. That's exactly how not to proceed. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're just seeking. Yes. And as long as you're seeking, you're not happy in the present, then, you know, it's just another thing that takes you away from the possibility of it happening, right? Something like that. I remember I went back to the hotel in Mumbai after the retreat, took the train back from that centre. It was outside of Mumbai. Mm. I'm in the hotel room, sitting on the bed, trying to recreate that experience. It ain't happening. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Several years passed. But that experience was never forgotten. And then until I came to go to the meditation centre where the teacher I've discussed for, Tan Dharmabitu, the guy that I brought to Hong Kong to give his talk for the week, until I went to that meditation center several years later then i found that i could almost almost switch a button in that environment because the environment's very important and withdrawing the whole thing about like so you don't talk you, you cultivate again this idea that you're on your own you eat sensible food you you don't have any money or they take all your devices away so this is the right environment to be in. that's what meditation center is for to create the possibility of meditation happening so I went to that center and, and then there I found that it was controllable. If you did the work, put yourself in that environment, follow the instruction, after a few days, I found that I could do it. 
But so you're saying, for example, living in Hong Kong, we have a so it's not going to happen here in Hong Kong. For me, it's not going to happen. Wow. I know there are people that I'm sure there are people that can find that meditative state sitting in their home in Hong Kong. But for me, it's not going to happen in Hong Kong. So I may sit and just try and bring some quietitude mm. in, which is also very very useful. But to find that to get that far down or that up or in in let's call it. It's not going to happen for me in Hong Kong. I'm too distracted in Hong Kong. So I'm going back to the meditation retreat next week to see my teacher. I, I imagine it will be pretty much the same thing. I imagine after a couple of days, because it's hard to. It's culture shock. You're in culture shock mm. at first. It's kind of terrible actually, you know, to be in that environment again. Cold showers in the morning and you no know, distraction and you know like you can't do what you want and you know. i love the how you describe it as terrible but yeah i'm signing myself up i'm just well, my ticket because people maybe think there. they come as the meditation retreat and it's going to be like sitting on a cloud you know like this kind of philosophical pampering forget it it's tough you know it's just hard so probably inevitably what's going to happen is after one or two days i'll find that i've adjusted and i start to do the work and it starts to happen I start to, and you, there are signs, there are very recognizable signs that it may happen to you. Incredible physical signs. So one of them is, after a couple of days of doing the work, it starts with breathing. Anapanasati is the method that they use. Anapanasati. So that means breathing in and out with concentration. It's a Pali word. Pali the, was the language of the Buddha. It's a derivative of Sanskrit, they say. And Thai language is based in Pali. So if you speak Thai, then you can understand some of Pali. So anapanasati is the method. It's a breathing-based method. So once you've done the breathing consistently for a day or so, you begin to feel the possibility. And so yeah, one of the, first, the signs that you're almost there is your face starts to have like um, pins and needles. You start to feel it on your cheeks and on your forehead and on your, and your eyes and your neck. You start to feel. When it first happened to me, I thought it was bugs. I'm like, get off. Really? I was oh, like, what's that weird? Wow. It was so vivid. And then I understood, wow, now this is, no, you're doing the wrong thing. You know, you need to ride this out. And it's not unpleasant. It's because you're bringing so much awareness to this region, you're breathing in your face. You begin to notice those sensations that are always there, but you haven't noticed them. You're simply noticing the common or garden sensations on the surface of the skin that normally you don't notice them because the sense is so dull. That is so now your sense is so sharp. You're beginning to feel all of these millions of little things all over your, yeah, on your arms maybe, you know. And then you know that your concentration is now honed to such a point. To use the words of my teacher, eventually it's, you know, described it once as it's as if you've stepped into a, a huge velvet space, dark velvet space. So it's like nothing's changed. You've, you're still sitting there with your legs crossed or whatever in this meditation center surrounded by people like rummaging through their bag or whatever you know blowing their nose dipping up their jacket whatever right. but you your awareness has totally changed and suddenly for example any aches and pains sitting like this totally gone you're extremely comfortable you're extremely relaxed and yet you're very very steady you're very upright and it's like an ecstasy, you weep sometimes. Your body is like weeping for joy. But finally, the mind is released from its awful tyranny. The kind of beauty and the tragedy of the world is kind of offered to you. And it's incredibly reassuring to know that there's this absolute quietitude is in you. You just aren't usually connected with it. You know, it's so satisfying to me to know. And even though in Hong Kong I can't find it, and I haven't been to the center for two years, so that's how long I haven't connected with it. But I know that inside me is a silence. 
is an observer. Uh, there's much further to go than that, by the way, but that's as far as I get, because that feeling, which they call piti, well, again, my teacher says that what will happen is that you'll fall in love with that feeling and you won't get any further because... So is, that's right. a reward for your hard work. I mean, you're literally like just... Oh, my God, it's like, it's like an orgasm, but it's very, very slow and it's very subtle and it's just, it's just you're overpowered with joy. It's natural, beautiful bliss. And you can get addicted to that feeling. So I, I concluded that monks are basically drug addicts if they're doing the work. Oh, wow. Is or that sex they're, addict. <laughs> they're, they're just sitting there blissing out. Yes. You know, they're paid. They're, they, they have an existence where if they're doing the work, a lot of, wow. I believe a lot of monks don't actually do the work for whatever reason. Mm. So that PT stage is very difficult to leave because it's so delightful. Mm. If, if you've got that far, and that's already a lucky break, if you've got that far, probably that's, and that's where I'm stuck. And as I talk to you now, I, want, I can't wait for that to happen to me again, you know, which is a problem actually. Right. But it's a type it, of is, it is delightful. I mean, it's incredible. You, you can't believe how, how you but feel. But now I'm curious, what's the next stage? The next stage has to be better for people to want to leave. I mean, I can only go by how it's described. So anapanasti is 16 steps. The first four are these breathing preparation steps. If you've achieved those, then as a reward, the fifth step is this delightful, bliss, blissful feeling. And I do it a massive disservice by saying delightful, blissful feeling. This, this belittles something so extraordinary, you can't believe it. But there it is. What's beyond that? I can show you the text, but to me it's meaningless because I've never been there. So you, and you can't describe you know, it. Yeah, yeah, I can't describe it. My teacher's described it. If, if I can find that feeling two or three times when I go again next week, I'll, mm. that's good enough for me. I probably won't <laughs> get any further. Do you think this sensibility also exists in the Ashtanga practice where we can be so honed in and concentrated that you get the sense of bliss there's a taste of it right you must have felt it also there's there's, there's an element of yeah. that if we're honest we probably realize that ashtanga is fairly limited in its scope in terms of getting that to any kind of a greater extent we, we're aware of that the concentration itself is very much touch and go isn't it we're in the moment we've got the dristi under control we're working with the breath and then again we're back and then mm. again we're off and then again we're back and so which is a great exercise for bringing making the mind stronger Personally, I, and it's totally biased because that's my experience of meditation. Real meditation is sitting still. It's yeah. bringing the body under stillness, not movement and stillness, which is great. It's making the body very still. And then it's possible for the breath to slow right down to become like this, almost like just a whisper here. And as you watch it, you can't even, you can't even believe that you can exist on such a tiny amount of breathing and it's at that point where things begin to change. And then this, mm. what I consider to be meditation, may happen to me. So, no, Ashtanga can't offer that possibility, but it's a taste of it. And it's also, I think that if you practice Ashtanga yoga, it's, it's going to be easier to meditate in this way. It's just like a precursor, which is what Ashtanga says anyway, right? Yeah. You know, yama, niyama, yes. and so on and so on and so on. And then asana, and then later you get to... Wait at the end. Yeah, right. concentration and then meditation. So... It's actually, that's the right order in a way. So let's take the conversation to the classroom. Okay. What are you writing in your notebook oh, yeah. when you're walking yeah. around? I remember first time You'll going be to your class. <laughs> You'll be disappointed though. Have you, seen, have you seen The Shining, the Stanley Kubrick film? So in that film, it's Jack Nicholson plays a psychopath, right? He goes to this 
hotel in Alaska or something in the middle of nowhere in winter, right? Because there's no guests, so he's just a caretaker and he's going so he can write his novel, you know. Right. Is, and so he's got his typewriter and his A4 and he's got his young wife, Shelley Duval, I think it is, and a young kid. And he's hammering away at the typewriter for months and months and months. He's getting more and more moody as he turns into a psychopath. Does the ghost of the hotel begin to overtake his soul or whatever? And him and his wife have a huge row. I'm, this is probably not exactly how it happens but I'm giving a very short version she finally breaks into his private space and looks at what he's been typing and the page says all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy all work and no play (laughs) and she goes back and every page simply says that it's very disappointing profoundly disappointing so I'm just writing people's names in that book it's mostly just attendance so, oh, wow. so it's, a, it's an aid the memoir so I, I've got a shit memory so it's basically a method for me to remember everybody's name otherwise I couldn't remember you know if you come one time so if you came the next time so I'll give myself a, a hint I'll say big hoopy earrings or whatever that's, yes. that's Donna Australian accent that's Donna oh hamstring issue that's Donna whatever. Yeah. so that sure that information is mostly an aid the memoir because I like to I like to reassure people I know who you are we've seen each other before you know so that is actually interesting because I think Every student would love to think, yep, Nigel is taking notes about me, paying attention to what posture I'm up to, and he's going to remember next time. But just the fact that you're writing down their names and acknowledging them. So that's what it's about. Because I want to have a relationship with people. And to me, this is, this, is, this is crucial. I can remember mostly what posture people are at. I remember because mm. I showed them the posture. If I showed you the posture, I can pretty much probably remember. I may have to ask, aren't we at like Kapitasana? Why are you, you know? And but yeah, I will write down that crucial information that you have got that injury or that you came as somebody's friend or that you are a guest or that you're just here for three days or that, right. you know, certain things, but mostly it's a list of names. It's a habit I got into when I was running my own program because I had to make sure I got paid. So I'd, I'd write down who came that day. And, it's, and that habit just kind of continued, but it's very useful to remember people's names yes. and to remember their particular. So you'll start, I'll flip back. Like, Where did I see that person before? Oh, yeah, that's Donna. Yeah, oh, she's got the hamstring. Okay, yeah, yeah. But it's mostly just a list of names, so it's maybe you're disappointed with that. <laughs> I'm not. I think I think your students will be really happy. I, to I because I I must that. make a connection. As as soon as it's established in me that that person is is a serious student, is likely to return, then it's very important that we have a relationship as soon as possible. It can't be that you're just a faceless bod. That's not good enough, and it's still so risky. So I feel I want to get to know people straight away. I'm people really find happy it very, to people, hear that. People it's, find it very reassuring, you know, when people come yes. back and say, hi, Donna, nice to see you again. Oh, yeah. Wow, my name. I'm not That's just great. a number. I'm just, I'm not this invisible person that just shows yeah, up. Yeah, they can't be right. like that. Not in my scheme of things. No I way. I think especially it in like Hong that. Kong, it is so common for people to feel invisible. I think partly that's one of the reasons some people are coming to yoga is to try and establish, get a human connection, mm. you know, in this, in this city where, I mean, it's a society that cold shoulders everybody everywhere all the time. You know, that's, this is how we work. Shove people out of the way, you know, like, you know, we don't mean any harm, but we're just, uh, we're, we're in a rush. I haven't got time for you, you know. Hold the door for somebody. Like they, yeah. they don't say thank you. They'd rather you didn't do it because maybe they owe you because you held the door or something. It's just like, just leave me alone. And so I feel more than ever that it's a way of establishing that connection with people. I think people are craving. The, another book I always refer to is Jean Leadloff's classic book, The Continuum Concept. You know? Oh, yes. You know it? Yes. You've read it? I've read it before I had children. 
It was okay. So you're the, you're one of the very first people I've wow. ever met in my life that's also read it. Isn't it amazing? Wow. Yes. So you know this question that you said was going to come later. What's the so the most influential books would be *In Search of the Miraculous*, *Suspensky*. I've already uh, mentioned, and it would be the *Continuum Concept*. The *Continuum Concept* ties so directly right into teaching yoga and practicing yoga. So if you remember, the *Continuum Concept* says that you know the trauma from the baby, this you know the baby like crying itself to sleep endlessly, waiting for mum and dad to come, and that mum and dad aren't coming, and that that trauma becomes synonymous with tight muscles with with this very primal layer of tight muscles and it's because it's happening in precognitive times later in life with the mind you can't fix it because the mind wasn't aware of it so there needs another method to get in and untie those muscles that are synonymous with that emotional trauma what's the method yoga is the method you see and even lead love suggests that at the end of the book if you remember she suggests two ways out of this hugging a lot and yoga deep tissue yoga about the yoga part yeah she says that at the end of the book i read the book and i was like my god it was jaw dropping that's me oh my god i do that wow that's what yeah happens. that's for me human touch is massive with my family we are always hugging and kissing but like the skin on skin yeah so this came huge. to me much later because i don't think my family were particularly like that my dad wasn't for sure that was a typical, you know, British male brought up in the 40s or 50s or whatever. That book explains it very well, that from our very young childhood trauma, our sort of baby trauma, is that the term? I don't know. That's going to inform how we practice yoga. That's going to inform the restrictions that we have, kind mm. of either abuse or maybe abandonment issues or neglect issues that we had as a child, and we all have them in varying degrees. I believe that's going to inform the difficulties we're going to have in opening our body up and as we open our body up these because the tight muscles are synonymous with the the memory with the, with the, the memories emotions. as the muscle releases we release the traumatic but we can only release it if we notice to where it's connecting to because if no i don't think so so it doesn't happen to me very often anymore in my early years of yoga and so bearing in mind I was this quite stiff young guy and you know, never thought about stretching at all. So, I mean, postures are, and I remember being in deep twists, maybe the Murray Chastain D or whatever, I don't know, assisted by my teacher who was quite brutish. Um, so they were very strong adjustments. And I would, memories, thoughts, negative emotions would surface in that moment. And I would literally think why has that come to mind how weird i haven't thought of that for decades and then like a puff of smoke it's gone and i would realize well that's that was in me and now i feel like now it's now it's seen and now it's released really 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 and so and i've seen the correlation of that in in my students and i've seen especially in any kind of chest opening back opening type poses because we go around like protecting our heart you know we don't want anyone to see our stuff it's a big job is to open the heart, open the chest, you know, open the back, which is all the same thing. And dropping back maybe for the first time or for the first time deeply and you help them up and, and they laugh uncontrollably in your face out of nowhere. Suddenly they're like, oh, this is ridiculous. And, you, and they're like, sorry. And they, they don't know where it came from either. Or, or people cry. Suddenly they're weeping. Yeah. It happens. And it's released. It's a release. And so I think that this is exactly what Leadloff's talking about. So we get deep into this these tensions that we've been holding on to since infancy and the yoga forces them open it's not what it's, mm. you know and maybe some of our emotional trauma is released at the same time so i think that's what's happening wow 
I want to cover a few more of the physical practice because mm. people can relate to it. It's tangible. They can take it to the classroom and implement straight away. And I think it's going to be really helpful. Yeah. Are there three things that we should focus on throughout our practice that you feel is absolutely crucial? What changed my practice was focusing my breath. But when I first learned the Ujjayi breathing, it was making that throat noise. And I realized I was being too strong yeah. with the tension. I thought I was being a good student, making yeah. the loudest noise, yeah. and I was like doing it properly. But I was creating tension in my body and it was in my shoulders and my neck. Mm -hmm. And then I changed it and I was more gentle. And that made a huge difference in my practice. So is there anything else that jumps out in your mind that you think people can really make a small shift and, and benefit from it? Having seen every student injure themselves and having injured myself many times, paying sufficient attention to what we're doing so that that's minimized, that's crucial. You know, it's so destroying to see people smash themselves up and it happens so easily. People, we don't realize how strong this yoga is. When I came to it, I applied the same logic as going to the gym. Like the more weight I can pull mm. and the harder I can pull it, then the better the result's going to be. And I applied that logic to yoga and I messed myself up, you know, and I gave myself quite significant injuries. What injuries did you get? Oh, too, too many to list. Oh, it's another whole discussion. You know, so many surgeries and different things I've had to have. And, you know, like I really mashed myself up. Hopefully being sufficiently informed by the teacher and then, yeah, paying sufficient attention to what we're doing and being careful. What you give is a good example. Breathing too strongly and thinking, you know, like, really, I'm gonna, my breath is going to be really powerful. That's a, that's a recipe for disaster. Mm. That, that encourages us to work too hard. And in fact, and I only learned this about four or five years ago, is that the inhale can be as, almost as strong as you like, but the exhale must be super soft. And it's hard to practice that. So right. they're both of equal length, but all the power is on the inhale. The exhale is just a release. I always give this metaphor, it's like blowing up a balloon, a child's balloon. So you blow up a child's balloon, it's hard work, right? How does the air come out? You just open the neck. By itself it comes out. Yeah. So the exhale is like that. But we don't do that. We put a force behind the exhale. Yeah. We don't need to. And that's the balance. So if we could remember that kind of work, there's much less chance we'd injure ourselves. But we're so intent on getting as quickly as possible or as efficiently or as strongly yeah. as possible from A to B. So the emphasis is totally wrong in that regard, let's say. That's really important is that we don't injure ourselves. So we do whatever it takes so that we minimize those injuries happening. Because another thing that we do is we, we seek counsel from outside. We, we're asking, you know, like, how, how should I do this? Why don't we just pay attention to what is actually happening? So when we do that pose, or we approach that pose, actually see what's happening, see how it feels. Is this reasonable to do this? Mm. Leg behind the head, great example. Is it reasonable to, for me to do leg behind the head? Am I ready? Will I ever be ready, actually? But that doesn't matter, but like today, you yeah know. so that is a really interesting point because every day is different and every day is different so just because you put your leg behind your head yesterday it doesn't mean today it's going to be yeah that day and just because the, it worked on the right side doesn't mean the left side is going to be the same in fact you're guaranteed it's going to be different mm. so really really paying attention and seeing how things feel there's your answer it doesn't matter what it looks like and it doesn't matter what your teacher says about it really is this sensible for me to do this? How does it feel? Does this feel relaxed? Am I relaxed? Am I, am I in some way blissful? Whatever that means. I mean, 
Or am I in significant pain here? Am I hanging on for dear life? Can I breathe? You know, am I stressing out? Am I but are we supposed to have some sort of pain and tension to to progress? No. I used to quote Batabi Joyce a lot, and now I don't quote him so much. <laughs> <laughs> you can imagine why. And this is a funny story. So, you know, I was there for a couple of years with him, and people would ask him questions in the Sunday conference, so-called conference, right? And he'd come out with some funny stuff, some that you couldn't understand. One time, this guy asked the question, Guruji, this week you gave me the new asana, and, uh, oh, so much pain is there. And it seems like every time you give me a new asana, there's like a new pain. And so, Guruji, my question is, will there always be pain? And he had this huge smile on his face, and he went, always there will be pain. He said, so, so I used to like to quote that, thinking that's wisdom, you know. Right. Now I'm not so sure about that. So there's a number of things about Batabi Joyce that we know he was totally wrong about. So I sort of retract that quote. It is funny, mm. or, and maybe there's some wisdom in it, I don't know. I'm no longer convinced that there needs to be pain. No pain, no gain, right? We grew See, up with that. I don't know about that anymore. I don't think that that's necessarily right. Sure, there's aching muscles from, from mm. working hard. Sharp pain in the joints, we don't want that. That's not going to be yeah, no. That's not going to be helpful. Crick my neck, that's not going to be helpful. Tore the meniscus in my knee as I did, and on the left, that's not helpful. Yeah. That was me ignoring the messages. Of what pain. kind of messages were you? Well, that I'm tight. It hurts, but I did it anyway. So, no, I don't think necessarily there needs to be pain. Not in the way that it is sometimes prescribed. I remember a teacher telling me we only get one pair of knees, so take care of them. Yeah, yeah, really. Yeah, so I smashed mine up, both of them. Wow, from your yeah. practice. Well, it, it, I was a long distance runner just prior to the practice. Mm. I, I think that I laid the ground that way, pardon the pun. I, right. think that, I think that when you do long distance running, I ran marathons, then do a lot of damage. So how do we prevent injuries? This is really huge for me because mm. It happens so often. With classes here, we show up, we practice and we go. Mm. I remember 20 years ago when I first started my Ashtanga practice in Australia, the teacher would sit down for a good 15, 20 minutes and talk about philosophy and the eight limbs, all of that. But now we just show up, right? And the class starts one minute past the hour they're supposed to, and then, you know, we're off. Exactly, and then we're off. Yeah. And... Injuries happen so often. Why do you think it's happening? And how can we prevent it? Well, I really love Pure Yoga. I think it's an amazing organization. And they've been very, very good to me. And I think that they offer an amazing package for people. You know, it's incredible that, like, for not much more than where I come from, 100 quid a month, you Mm. can get unlimited yoga by some very, pretty sophisticated teachers. That's amazing. So many branches, it's amazing. However, to give another aspect is that I, I call Pure Yoga the yoga supermarket. You know, so there's, there's so much choice mm. and it's very efficient to service so many people. And the class finishes at 2, by 2.15 the cleaning team have, you know, cleansed the room totally and there's a whole new set of students and they're ready to go and the teacher has to immediately start the class. If he talks too much, somebody's going to get pissed off and fed up. And if he doesn't finish exactly on time and fulfill everybody's general uh, expectations, yeah. he's going to be in trouble and so on. That's the yoga supermarket right there. And so, and so you don't get that homey personal touch. You don't get that thing where if you show up half an hour early and you catch your teacher having a coffee, you can have a good chat. And, yeah. You know, and then maybe a little group forms and it becomes, you know. A community. Yeah. I mean, I had that when I started. It was a small yoga studio. Yeah. My teacher would sing 
the, the Bhagavad Gita in Sanskrit to us as we did our sun salutations. We sit on the floor and chant it. You know, mm. like I didn't know what you were saying, but it was very charming. You know, it made you feel that this was a much more holistic system. And he would lecture us about ethics and about diet and so on and so on. That opportunity isn't afforded us here within this schedule where a class starts every 15 minutes. Yes. That's a fact. That's amazing. But it's still, it doesn't engender the kind of yoga that you and I started out with, mm. you know. So that's the price you pay for this kind of level of efficiency. The thing is, though, what people are afforded in this center and in some of the other centers is a, is a master teacher. So if I was a student... Yes coming to AST, I'd be seeking out somebody like me, I'd be seeking out Nigel, and I would want to get a relationship with him as soon as possible. I would want Nigel to understand as much about me as possible. I smashed up my knees a couple of few years ago, you know, I've got a shoulder issue, I did this, I did that. I'd like that person to see the way my trauma is manifesting so that they understand what material is that they've got to work with. Find a good teacher, get a relationship going with a teacher, tell them everything as much as they're prepared to listen to you, you know, take them out for lunch pay for their lunch so that they're encouraged to come with you and then tell them everything about you so they understand you so that's a great way of working you know that's that's a really great suggestion right? actually being proactive about yeah, yeah, it yeah 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 and then teachers aren't mind readers you're just another person that doesn't communicate anything yes. it's very interesting you know even in the yes. mysore room you help people you give them advice how to practice you tell them maybe if you did a bit more like this you give them adjustments and some people are very good at giving you immediate feedback so some people literally say, thank you very much for that. That was really good. And so then it's really clear. Or they'll just give you an encouraging face or they'll make a satisfying kind of sound. And you get some idea that that was, they quite like that or whatever. And other people, you get a sense that they didn't like that. They didn't want to be told that. They hated that adjustment or whatever. Mm. Or that adjustment was not necessary. That adjustment was, was misjudged or whatever. And they give you a sense. Other people are totally blank. You have no idea what they think. They're just a, yes. right? They're just like, Absolutely. was that good? Was it not good? Do you hate me? You know what? That's something that I learned is actually to say no. I've had bad adjustments that feels like it hurt and it's too deep. I have to say stop. Okay. And no one ever does that in the class that I've been in. Yeah, that's right. So this would be another great way. And so, and especially if you've already established this point A of getting to know the teacher a little bit and having them get to know you, then you might feel a bit more emboldened to say no. And so with my assistants, what I ask them to do, and they're quite good at this mostly, especially when they're starting out, is even the most routine adjustment, you say to them, would you like me to adjust you in this posture? And then they, that person has got, is in the position where they can say, no, thank you. There's no harm done. Yes. There's no offense, right? We try and have that, and even if I'm- And you open a conversation, there's a dialogue there, yeah, right? Yeah, right. Instead of this assumption that I'm in charge here, I'm telling you that you need this adjustment and you're gonna accept it. If I'm in any doubt, I try, I don't always remember, if I'm in any doubt about a student, then I'm gonna ask them, would you like this adjustment? Should I help you with this? How are you feeling today? You know, or whatever, or, you know, but I, st I still find those moments where I'm adjusting something, I think, what am I doing actually? What am I doing? Is this, does this person even want this? Is this necessary actually? Yeah. Is, isn't this really stupid? Why am I? It's not, I don't take it for granted. But unfortunately, having done this now for such a long time and, and being in this studio for six years, I think, in a row, 10 months a year, <laughs> six days a week, you do quite easy to slip, especially, I mean, I have some students from day one, you know, you do right. slip into a thing where you almost forget to kind of like check in with them. Do you yes, actually want I love this? that question. Yes, would you like an adjustment? That's yeah. what I did when I was assisting. And I love it when the students said, no, I'm okay. I yeah. Think, That's great. 
you know what you're working on and you've got your space to yeah, do it, yeah. right? So try and give them the option to say no. So that's, uh, when I have assistants, I have a sheet that I send them a bunch of words and that's crucial that you check in first, make yes. sure they want it. Anyway, so we've said yeah. pay attention, get to know the teacher and then try and find the right teacher that sets something up that's not presumptuous, mm. not kind of bullying, not kind of like saying I have all the power, like I said. And, and I have to keep reminding myself of that too. That's the good thing about the Patabi Joyce abuse thing that's come up. Well, it. let's talk about that while mm. we're here, actually. Okay. So um, the late Patabi Joyce was exposed with sexual assault with his students, male and female. And you actually openly spoke up against him and mm. said, yeah, I don't want anything to do with this. And so many other teachers, like certified teachers, just did not do that and yeah. I thought it was really amazing what you've done do you want to talk about you know the idea of a teacher and and questioning that well I guess it's a huge subject it's been a big disappointment to me the response to it the information coming up was a big disappointment I hadn't been exposed to it or I hadn't previously accepted it I don't recall ever seeing him abuse anybody or what I would call abuse mm. You do see people online saying everybody knew. I knew everybody knew. They say, oh, no, no, I didn't know. I didn't know people that... It wasn't a discussion amongst us. I, admittedly, I was quite junior in those days, but... So I didn't know. Um, so when it came up, I was disappointed, to say the least. I was confused at first. I was in denial for quite a long time. Now nah, this that's one person's, two persons. Oh, now three persons. Okay, now four. Oh, five. Okay, now we're nine people. Ah... You know, maybe this isn't just a, a misperception by somebody. It mm. maybe this really, and so you know, and over a period of about six months, I basically said to myself, "Gosh, this happened. It really happened. He really abused people." That was very disappointing. And then the response to it was very disappointing again. So the response of Sharat and the response of senior teachers, who either said nothing or more or less said it didn't happen. That's very disappointing. Of course, everybody's entitled to their opinion. But once you're up to sort of whatever it became, more than nine, whatever it became, 10, 20 people, described the same kind of thing, that they were routinely abused. Well, I mean, come on, you know, really? You don't... Mm. It seems like it happened. It seems very, very likely it happened. So just to say he didn't do it, he was great. And, and, it, and it never happened to me. Fuck that. Who cares? It didn't happen to you. You know, yeah, great. It didn't happen to me either. That doesn't mean anything. I've never been raped. It doesn't mean I don't feel sorry for rape victims. Come on. It's like, yeah. Patabi Joyce was always good to me. I'm sorry. That's a total <laughs> cop-out. But we get this a lot. You know, this happened to you a lot. He was so good to me. He changed my life. Yeah, I know, I know. But he also abused people. So it was very disappointing that people, and people are still doing it. And, and as I say, Sharat's response was totally inadequate. Sharat is the grandson who's now running yeah. the Shala. yeah. It brings to the question of how do we choose our teacher? People in power, right? Yeah. And to really open your eyes and your heart when you are placing yourself in this kind of situation and be safe. Well, yeah. So you see, this idea of faith in the teacher and, and giving yourself over and trusting the teacher, it, pretty much that idea has now been rubbished, I think. Now I don't think we can, we can reasonably apply that anymore. Because see what happens, it becomes a cult. And there may be some amazing individuals, or there may have been you know, some amazing individuals that, that can find themselves with so much power and know really absolutely the correct way to use it so that nobody is harmed. But when have we seen that? We've hardly seen that. 
cults are formed where there's somebody at the top who's never criticised, that doesn't hear the criticisms, that's defended by sycophants and followers. So the great thing, one of the great things that came out of these last couple of years is, is, to, is, to, is to throw away the idea that we need a guru, that power doesn't reside in, in, in the, the teacher. We don't need his picture at the no, front of the class. So that's what happened to me. Yeah, pure yoga wouldn't allow me to have that picture on display all the time because at the end of your class you put that picture away. So daily I would take the picture of Patabi Joyce out, put it at the front of the class, at the end of the class, dutifully take it and put it in the box. Mm. You know, and even the other students were afraid to touch that picture. They didn't like to place that picture and remove it. It was like that was Nigel's special picture. I, admittedly, that was my special picture. I. I bought a frame and I stained the frame to make it look like oldie worldie and then right. you know, long, <laughs> about 10 years ago. And then whilst all of this stuff was going on and these changes, this new information was coming and I was due to be putting the picture up there every day, I began to say, God, what am I doing, you know? And then a day came, I think it was a Monday or something or the week before this first practice and I, and I said, you know, I can't do it. I just, I can't put that picture at the front of the class anymore. And then, and then and I stopped putting that picture at the front of the class. And then shortly after that, I, I wrote the students about how I feel. Some of you may have noticed that that picture doesn't appear at the front of the class anymore. And there's a huge story behind that. And here's my story. The reason I'm telling you that is that I, so I thought to myself, well, okay, so we're not going to have Patabi Joyce at the front of the class because he was apparently abused to students. So who, who are we going to have? Are we going to have Sharat? Well, he's not much better, is he? I mean, look at him. He's, he's still defending Batabi Joyce. He doesn't do anything or say anything. He, so we're not going to have Sharat. So who should we have? So should we have Krish, Krishnamacharya? Well, he, they say he was kind of brutal, you know? Maybe he's the reason that Batabi Joyce was... So we're not going to have Krishnamacharya. So who are we going to have? It's like this kind of stuff. Yeah. This discursive stuff. And so, of course, I realized, like, we don't need a guru, do we? Why do we want... Do we even want a guru? No, we don't want a guru. Well, why do we have to have a guru? We don't have to have a guru. And in fact, a guru is a kind of negative thing, you know, because it's taking the power away from us. And mm. Ashtanga Yoga is about finding our own power, is, is our own, is creating our own internal strength. So then immediately giving away our power and saying, saying I give everything to Salva Joyce or to Shroud or to Nigel, this is crap, you know, like this, it's for us now. And so I think that this is a really positive thing that's wow. come out of it for me. Yes is that self-practice is truly self-practice now. So there is I no love guru. That. What do you think, right? So this is the, that's my positive conclusion of all of it. I really love that. Oh, good. Are your students, are they taking the driver's seat? Are they willing to step up? Well, I don't think I lost any students and I got a lot of positive feedback. I think I got a lot of respect for making these decisions as it kind of went along publicly or, in, or at least in our Facebook group, in our group that we keep for the class telling everybody my thought processes more or less as they happened and I think I got a lot of positive feedback about mm. that about that decision about that, that process I mean a lot of the students never even heard of Batabi Joyce yeah, so you know whatever it's like yeah photo no photo yeah, who? yeah, yeah right I want to actually jump to the other limbs of Ashtanga oh yeah we've been talking about asana which is the postures the physical part yeah we're not going to go through all eight no but the next one that I want to go to is Yama. It deals with the eth- ethical standards and yeah. sense of integrity, yeah. which is actually a little bit what we've been talking yeah. about. Is this why you've got plant-based? Non-violence yeah. of the animals? Mm. Totally. totally. Totally, totally. And this decision was made early on in your practice? This decision was made before I started yoga, before I 
possibly found even the philosophy school. It was again, it was another bit of serendipity. So I always tell this story. I was it was about we were about ninety nineteen ninety three maybe still in the music business. I was in Montreal on business, visiting a client, staying with a client for about a week. We were having a great time, drinking a lot, eating a lot, having fun. Supposed to be making deals, but I think we just mostly drank, got to know each other. Great guy called Robert in Montreal, French-Canadian guy. And um, I spent the whole week with him. We did everything together. It was great. And at some point, we're, on the, we're driving down the, the freeway somewhere in, in Montreal. And he said, we're just going to pull over and we're going to visit my brother at his place of work. And I'm like, sure, whatever. So we pull off the highway. We go into this sort of clearing and this kind of foresty thing. And we drive. And then we're, there's this sort of, as I recall it, it's a long time ago, a kind of a, a large industrial, light industrial building. No clue what we're walking into. It was an abattoir. It's a slaughterhouse. Oh. Yeah. So his brother's a butcher. And he says, oh, yeah, didn't I tell you that we're a family of butchers? You know, I, okay, I've moved up the industry, but we're a family of butchers. That's how come we've got these great steaks to eat every night. I'm like, wow, man, this is a slaughterhouse. And we go in and there's like, they just slaughtered some cows. And they were literally hosing blood mm. off the walls. And the floor is awash with this water and blood. And there are these animals hung upside down. Maybe, I can't remember, maybe a dozen. And what happens is, if you've never seen it, is once the animals mm. are hung upside down, the blood goes the gravity sends the blood down the head starts massively gorging with blood so the head is becoming huge with blood of this animal you've never seen no it's unbelievable so there they are these 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 animals that haven't been dead very long with these puppy great big bloody heads and he takes my hand he goes these have only just been killed and he slaps my hand on the side saying indeed it's still warm you know and i'm just like you know like can't believe wow. it. just can't believe it you know and he's He's talking to his brother and he shows me around and then there were chopped up bits of animals and frozen animals and like, you know, it was horrendous. It was horrendous, it was horrendous. And so I was in shock for about a fortnight. So I didn't actually go vegetarian at first. You know, we, that night it was steak for dinner and I ate it and everything and I didn't. I, but there was thing, things were happening, you know. Yeah. And then about two weeks later, I went to Chicago to see my bosses we went out for lunch and there were these typical midwestern big huge fat guys you know like and one guy had a big plate of wings another guy had a big plate of sausages another guy had a big plate of steaks and so on and uh we were hung i was hung over and i so clear to me and i looked at these mountains of meat and i went you know i'm done i'm done with it i don't want any part of this just like that yeah it was about a fortnight after that. I just so clearly saw the greed and the and the avarice and the the murderousness of this system, mm. you know. And I just realised, like, look, you guys, you're in such bad shape, you know. And you're just wolfing down this awful. And I was just like, you know, I can't participate in this any longer. And so it was done. Yeah. And I never, I never, I never went back to meet after that. So yeah, it was, it was a purely ethical decision, and it wasn't that different. And then, and then a bit later on, it became vegan. But I want to learn how can you be a healthy vegan because i went vegan for two years i did the green juice all of that and then i got sick all the time my immune system went down 
I later on realized I was misinformed. There were things. To yeah, so you need know. to educate yourself. Yeah. So you what need- are some of the pitfalls that you see vegans, like newbie vegans could fall into? What is a healthy meal, for example? Well, so, you know, in your, in your diet, you want a lot of fresh fruits and vegetables. A lot. A big variety. For somebody like me, okay, I'm very slim and so on, but I've got a very fast metabolism. I need to eat a lot. So I need a lot of rice. I need a lot of very heavy food. So I eat a lot of rice, brown rice, whole grain rice, and a lot of vegetables. I eat a lot of beans, pulses. I eat a lot of greens, a lot of kale, a lot of spinach, etc. Where's so, the protein? So that's well, the see, biggest question, myth, right? You see, it's a myth that meat is synonymous with protein. It's a total myth. It's a total myth. Protein isn't everything. This orange juice has got protein in it. Mm. So protein is in, is in a lot of products and we don't need meat for protein. We don't need eggs. We don't need milk for protein. Protein's in so many foods. We do, need a, we do need to educate ourselves a bit. So we still need a balanced diet. But you know, to me, a meal of brown rice, vegetables, beans, and some greens, that's, that's everything that I need. You know? And okay. then on top of that, I'll eat a lot of fruits, whatever I can get, bananas, tropical fruits, whatever. You know, and what about the fats? Would you put extra coconut oil mm. or well, avocado oil, that kind yeah, of stuff? I eat a lot of avocados. I put coconut oil in everything. Because that's another thing. I don't think I was having enough oils. So yeah. it was just all veggies. Yeah, me. so you've you got to do that. But you see, I don't look at those as supplements and meat replacements at all. Mm. You know, I look at the meat diet as a very unnatural way of being. And so with the vegan diet, you know, like, yeah, okay, maybe you had loads of green juices, but that's not... That's not enough. Just because it's vegan doesn't mean it's healthy. A packet of crisps is vegan. Doesn't mean they're healthy, is it? I mean, you know, sugar is vegan. <laughs> yeah, right. The chocolate bar we've yet to eat is vegan, but that doesn't mean it's you know going to give us everything we need. So you still got to find a balance. So you need to do a bit of research. So I mean, I, I I'm a layman. I've got some. I know a bit about Ayurveda. I know a bit about food combining. I know a bit about basic nutrition facts mm. and things i know that as a vegan one supplement i will take routinely is b12 it's okay. difficult to get b12 i'm not the nutritionist but I, st- I study what people say and you know right. they talk about how we should take b12 supplements okay i'm going to go with that and then it feels good it seems to be it's been going on um, 25 years and i'm very 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 healthy and well mm. i'm almost never sick you know i lead a very very active lifestyle i'm 53 years old and i'm very very fit and well so it's working yeah, all those, I mean, you all look those... great, definitely, yes. Thank you. So, <laughs> I mean, if I'm convinced that if I ate the so-called conventional diet, I wouldn't be in this condition. Mm. I'm convinced that an excess of meat products is why we get sick. Beginning of when we were talking, looking back to original man, I'm pretty sure that we were more or less vegans, that that's mm. our natural diet. Okay, we're going to make a small diversion. Okay. You're a massive fan of David Bowie. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. So Ashtanga yoga is structured and traditional, and David Bowie was not. Oh, yeah. He was not conforming to society's expectations, and he embraced exploration. And you mentioned that David Bowie is like a father figure to you. Can mm. you elaborate on that, if you're comfortable with sharing? Yeah, a little bit. He just was the right guy at the right time for me, you know. He was hedonistic. Um, but he was very, very disciplined. So there's a, there's a really great interview with him in 1975 with Russell Harty on, on BBC TV. I think it's BBC TV, British TV anyway. 
when he had a reputation for being like a sex maniac and a crazy dude and you know like rock and roll whatever and so Russell Hart is asking him about his acting career which had just started at that point he had just they'd just been filming The Man Who Fell to Earth and uh, Russell Hart said how did you get on with being with the with the being an actor because it's a very disciplined existence you know working on set and blah 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 I mean how did you get on with that and and Bowie says it was great to work with people that are as disciplined as I am and Russell Harty went are you sure you're being entirely honest when you say that you're a disciplined person that's exactly what Russell Harty said and Bowie got really really pissed off and went listen discipline doesn't mean I got up at seven o'clock this morning and I had breakfast at half seven and I left the house and I went to work. That's not the definition of discipline. The definition of discipline, and it's the definition which I gave you a bit earlier. And Bowie said, it's I conceive of something that I think needs to be done and I get it done and it doesn't matter what the difficulties are or anything that happened along the way. Mm. Is If I conceive that it's, it's something worth doing, then you, I'm going to get it done. And then that is the definition of discipline. So, you know, yes, he was kind of wayward in, a, in, in this... He had fun, he had a lot of fun, but he had a massive work ethic. I mean, his output in the 70s is extraordinary how much he produced. Something like 15 of his own albums in 10 years and then produced a bunch of other people's albums. Also some of the greatest records ever made. I mean, he was prolific uh, and brilliant. And so he managed to traverse so many different things. Goodness knows how much sex he had in the 70s. Good for him, but he still (laughs) managed to produce amazing work. So, yes, he seems like he was a very different person, but he was a hard worker. I love that take on his character because we all see the glamorous, all the fun Mm. and the bling, but it is actually something supposedly boring, discipline, that is the foundation. If you want to get anything done. Yeah. Yeah, if you want to get anything done, if if, if you're only going to follow, like, enjoyment, then you're not going to achieve very much. Not really. And so he forced himself to work hard, you know, and he had a massive work ethic in him. I mean, anybody that feels inadequate, mm. like I said, he said to you before, he was traumatized as a child, he was neglected. And so you make up for that by like being very productive. So he was very, very productive and he, he produced a lot. So in terms of like his influence on me, so he was the cultural figure that I needed. So I wasn't getting that from my parents. I wasn't getting it from school, that's for sure. So then there's this very grand and beautiful, mm. elegant, otherworldly figure that was singing about how depressed he was, or seemed to be, and seemed to offer a way out, seemed to offer at least a, a bridge, at least, a, at least a, a kinship. So you could hear the way he presented his songs or whatever, and you could say, wow, this guy understands, you know, what the hell's going on. And he was cool. He looked the way you wanted to look. And he understood, he was, a, he was a prolific reader, he was a painter, he was an actor, he was a brilliant musician, singer, artist, great lyricist. He mm. was funny, he was funny, you know, he was a great comedian. I would look at him and think, wow, you know, and it wasn't, and the funny thing is, I, I didn't actually think he was that great, but he was better than everybody else. And I remember when I was a kid thinking, why aren't there more people like him? This is a fully functioning person. This is what an artist should really be. Not this other wishy-washy, characters, these flamboyant, whatever. This is a guy that can do everything, you know, and why aren't they more like him? He's just normal, but there aren't enough of him. In fact, there's only one or two or three or four or five. You know, there was a few other characters that are really brilliant. Um, He showed me what it's like to be 
to, to be fully functioning, to be a kind of genius. And he showed me what art is. He showed me what progressive, forward-thinking art would look like. He introduced me to the world of like progressive music, let's call it. You know, music that's doing something different. That's art. Music that's not just entertainment. Yeah, he was my cultural father. But I'm not alone in that. And when he passed away, I mean, the massive outpouring of, of grief and appreciation. And I realized, mm. gosh, I'm not alone. There's so many, I hadn't realized, so many people like, my God, you know, Bowie was my, he was my guy, you know. And it wasn't just me at all. It was like millions of people He really that way. represented a lot of people in the world that could not express they, Yeah, I felt they did not fit in. And then he, he impressed them with his brilliance, you know. Um, it's great to know that a person like that existed, was so productive. To me, his parting gift to me was that I'd already started the movie editing thing. And then when he passed away, uh, was, it was strange because he, he was from the past. He wasn't, I didn't like follow him for decades. Right. But then when he passed away, I was profoundly affected. Like everything went back to me being a teenager and I was profoundly mm. affected. And I made a Bowie video you know, I got this inspiration to make a Bowie video. Something happened to me and it was like, this idea came and it was, it was a, kind of like what I said to you earlier. And I produced this, this video and I was like, this is really good, isn't it? Is, this, is it just me and was it just... And, and I asked a friend to watch it and went, wow, that's like a proper video. That's like a proper amazing Bowie video. I'm like, it is, isn't it? And I posted it online and it got this huge response. The parting gift from Bowie is he gave me the way to express myself, you know, with this video making. Yeah. You see, so I kind of really feel that we had a very good relationship in a way, <laughs> you know. You know. He, he definitely left a legacy in you. And yeah. And it's going to continue. And it's not just me. I mean, all these bands that followed, that, that mm. name-checked him immediately, the bands we discussed earlier, Joy Division and so on, Echo and the Bunnymen, these early 80s bands, it was all like Bowie's influence. So legions of people that he's influenced finally he influenced me even though I was already like close to being 50 years old he gave me this gift you know isn't this funny when we're talking about having a guru and a teacher he is a teacher and he Definitely. left an impression and he has a massive influence on you without controlling you absolutely right? yeah he wanted us to be free for sure yes you know I mean he was the first person to deny that he was a rock star you know, he would love to do that. That wasn't his goal in life. He just felt a compulsion to produce and produce and produce and produce. And if people liked it, then that's a bonus almost. He was traumatized enough that he wanted the love and the feedback coming back. Mm. And he was hurt by criticism, sure. But that wasn't his primary goal. The primary goal was he just must produce, I think. He was a kind of guru for us, for our times. How do you find the balance between music and yoga? Do they complement each other or contradict Okay, there's several answers. The first answer I'm going to give is a bit is a bit flippant. I recently discovered that I can, because I'm faced with a lonely self-practice every day, I don't have the luxury of a class. So I recently, just recently, in the recent months, discovered that I can play music and practice. So this is heresy almost. So yeah. some mornings I will put on, it has to be a certain kind of music, it can't be something that's too vivid or busy. But certain mornings I'll put on something, maybe a long piece of, quite subtle music and it keeps me company once I practice this is kind of flippant answer to that so there's there's a very direct relationship yeah. but mostly they're quite two two fairly quite separate things to me I think I prefer to like have my period where I'm practicing and teaching yoga and maybe talking about yoga and then I like to forget about it 
it's like double life, right? Because some people think a yoga teacher is yoga 24-7 and there's a yeah. certain box that you fit in. Yeah, I mean, like I said before, I have to obey certain things so I have to go to bed at a reasonable time. I can't have a very indulgent meal late at night. I can't mm. because I need to be in good, the right condition emotionally and everything to practice and teach and physically, sure. So those things have to be obeyed, but I'm not like thinking they don't feel like a sacrifice for yoga they just feel like that's what a normal functioning person should do i right. refuse to poison myself i refuse to just routinely ingest poison that's going to like deplete me mm. so there's that's it and but aside from that you know i mean i spend hours at the editing suite hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours i forget to go to the toilet i forget to eat all these terrible things that we do to ourselves as a slave to the video editing yeah. you know so i do all that and then come back here and I do my yoga, you know. So yeah, it's two two parallel universes. Yeah. Yeah. So they don't they're not particularly related, I suppose. And I like I don't like the idea that I'm a specialist in only one thing. I like the idea that there's several things that are important to me. I found something I like to do. I found something that's very satisfying, you know, so I just do it. But it might I'm change a lot, so it could be that I'll find something else. Yeah, you're not locked into anything. Not particularly, no. And it, I, once I prove myself, once I put a few videos out and I got so much recognition and even like some of Bowie's band wrote mm. to me and said, this is great, can we use it, blah, and we got more. Once I got that kind of recognition, I got over that initial, like, I need to be appreciated. Now I don't care, you know, about that anymore. And it's just like, I just put them out because I like them. We're going to close this interview with a few rapid questions. Okay. So I, I don't know if I can just... answer rapidly. That's not my forte. <laughs> oh gosh, another hour. <laughs> All right. What is your worst fear? Huh. In yoga, you mean? or In anything. Strange thing is I don't, I'm not a very fearful person. We can move on to the next question if you don't have one that pop into I, your head. Maybe, maybe there's stuff, I don't know, but I don't particularly have fears i don't think what do you want to be remembered for no i don't want to be remembered so this is very interesting i can tell you about this so you know this one of the other amazing books that i was and this is a fairly contemporary book was a book called um immortality the quest to live forever this mm -hmm. is an amazing book i read this book and it became very clear to me and it was, i already had an inkling of this and so immortality the quest to live forever forever offers broadly speaking, four ways that we can live forever. So I don't know what order the book presents them in, but the one way, the first way I'm gonna mention is that we can have children, and through our children we can live forever, our influence, obviously our genealogy and so on. So this is the way that we can live forever, right? Mm. Literally have versions of ourselves, right? Yeah. But if you think of it, that's a vanity project. It it's is. pretty sad, really. Yes. If that's why you're having children, this is why we fail at par as parents. We... So that's one way that we can try and live forever. Another way that we can try and live forever is we can believe in God or something like that. We can believe in an afterlife. We can believe in rebirth and reincarnation and so on. That this individual thing in me that's so valuable to me will actually be passed on and will, I will in fact return in another form and it will still be me. But again, this is another incredible vanity project if you think of it. And there's no proof for it. This is another one of our quests to live, another method that we can live forever, according to this book, right? And then the third way of living forever is to literally be like, well, what they used to call cryogenic freezing. I don't know what they call it now, whatever the current technique might be. That, right. that some, by some crazy scientific method, 
we could be arrested right now and then rewoken up in a more you know future a future time, where right? that future could help us live for longer or could cure our cancer or whatever i personally believe that when the consciousness leaves the body or is stopped it's mm. we, that's it that's the end of that you know like so this you can't you can't just stop the consciousness in its tracks and then expect it to wake up in 200 years time and right. you just to go what you know hey what, what what month is it you know like this that's a nonsense so this is a and so the, the last method is to be remembered for my heroic deeds that's how i want to be that's how i'm going to live forever because oh, that nigel marshall made some amazing bow videos can you believe it and you know he was such a good yoga teacher <laughs> it was incredible do you remember what a great guy he was he was so kind to me that day you know so and i read this and i thought you know this one in particular is really it's really a big influence on our lives so we want to be remembered we we, we have this absurd idea mm. that we want to be heroes and we want people to go oh that donna was amazing you know that pod those podcasts never heard the like of it we will never see another donna right it's pathetic really right it's another yeah. kind of narcissism it's another kind of vanity so this book was really useful in informing me i'm, I'm obviously giving a hugely reduced version so i realized that no i don't want to be remembered for anything you know this is irrelevant plus i'm dead anyway like what do i care what you think of me when i'm dead what you think of me when i'm alive maybe i'm a little bothered about what do i want to be remembered for no i don't that's not that's oh, of no nice. interest to me it's great isn't it yes. this is an amazing book and i realized that I, I am just as big a sucker as everybody else and some of these ideas were very appealing to me because i'm so vain or narcissistic that yes i you know like the, the mind can't bear the idea that it won't exist yes it can't bear it what's the so point? it invents so it invents all this stuff to get around this fact that one day it won't exist and so this this idea of being remembered as a hero of dying on the battlefield or amazing works of art or you know whatever it's just a it's just a fallacy so you better enjoy what you're doing because you're remembering this moment totally prior to this krishna murti he talks like this you know that basically there are already enough difficulties in this life to 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 get so why think about next life and all that why worry about mm. like you know, why put so much effort in like like some of the buddhist beliefs that you know i'll do good deeds in this life you know making merit they call it in thailand so that the next one will be easier or so that my children in the next blah blah no you know the job is right here right now this is this is the life is short this is the only chance you've got that we know of could be wrong yes but i'm not going to put any eggs in that basket at all so yeah oh, that's my answer i love it what is your most gifted and mem memorable book so we've been this well the so great thing is we've done a bunch of them already the continuing concept was a big one right the big one in search of the miraculous video spensky this is a fairly recent book i've read immortality the quest to live forever um just to chuck in one i actually couldn't i mean the, we talked already i mean i'm obsessed about trying to read all the great novels but one of the first novels i read that made a big impression was george orwell's 1984 mm. you know that really did show me what a terrible totalitarian world we were already in and things could get much worse and indeed they have and so as a youngster reading that i was mm. you know and that was something i got from bowie because one of bowie's albums was based around that novel yeah it's his diamond dogs album you know and so i read the book thinking it's going to be all about bowie's album it's almost nothing to do with it but that doesn't matter it made a huge impression on me to 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 read about what a mess we're in you know what humanity's doing to itself so that's one of the really amazing very influential books for me i mean that really informed my world view you know that things are basically a, a mess 
Lastly, okay. what are your closing thoughts on how yoga could inspire growth? You mean transformation? Transformation. When I'm seeking growth, it could be in love, in health, mm. in my mind. Well, you see, Talbi Joyce was criticized and Ashtanga Yoga was criticized and probably all asana-based practices are criticized for not including or not starting with the armors and the armors like we're supposed to apparently like 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 it's a list that starts at one and finishes you know mm. at eight and so we should start with these ethical moral challenges and then this personal like you know internal cleanliness and inward looking and so on and then maybe it's time for the other the more physical aspects the breathing and the asanas and so on so and so Patabi Joyce was criticized the system's criticized but the average person on the street isn't going to come into pure yoga to be lectured about ethics. They're not going to be interested. Yeah. They're not interested. Don't tell me what to think and do. Don't tell me what's right and wrong. Don't tell me that I should be vegetarian. Don't tell me about brahmacharya. I definitely don't want to hear about that. Right? I'll, I'll do whatever I like. So to me, I think that what happens is when you start practicing asana in, the right, in, a, in a very, very dedicated way, the practice itself starts informing the rest of your life. Okay, it didn't quite happen that way with me because I found those other things before Ashtanga Yoga. Mm. So I, to me, it happened the other way around. But I was very lucky in a way that I did. I wanted to be lectured apparently about ethics and so on at the school. So, but for most people, so they come and they just innocently enough start doing yoga. And then if these, sometimes they'll even ask me very directly, you know, okay, what should I be eating? What should I be pursuing? Is this a good? Most people will begin to. I call it the internal policeman. So that, that annoying thing and you start saying, right. you know, you can't do that. Yes. The little voices, that's sorry, that's not good enough anymore. Who are you cheating? You're cheating yourself, you know. And so I think that just in terms of if we're talking about just practicing yoga, then I think that being very dedicated to a style of yoga like Ashtanga produces in you of itself. It's just a mechanism that starts up. And I've seen it time and time again. It happened to me, it happened to so many people I see them I see people change I see people improve themselves change their improve their attitudes you know without being told to do it without necessarily being told to do it you know they just start in very obvious ways they start to realize I can't eat that crap food anymore if I want to pursue this yoga I can't go to bed so late anymore I can't drink so much alcohol anymore I can't you know like it just it's just a mechanism starting with asana is a good idea start with that real rough stuff yeah. you know the real basics start grinding away at that and then the subtleties begin to become of interest to you you know and then you begin to and then you might, might read and go well I'm already doing that I'm already doing okay I'm already doing that you know yeah you know oh wow Nigel thank you so much oh. for your time you've been very generous with your time and all your stories oh yeah where can people find you well here at Pure Yoga yeah, so you're teaching in Central. Teaching in Central Hong Kong, Pure Yoga, Queens Road Central. I run the MySore program. 6.30, 6 a.m., the door opens. 6.30, I walk through the door. Until 9, thereabouts. That's Monday to Friday. Sunday's a bit later. Online? Online, I'm trying to avoid. I have, I have some online stuff. Shtagi Yoga Hong Kong, I have those names, but I, I hardly use them anymore. I find that's very... But... The class itself has a group okay. that we uh, that I post stuff to that's of interest 
possibly hopefully of interest to the class whether it's scheduling or some new idea that's come to me or some article that's come to me so that's but see I, I, I believe the remit is for the Mysore teacher is to have a local program for local people for the community and so this is the remit so that group is for this class like it's a secret group so you can't join it you don't even know it exists unless right. you're invited or whatever Great. so that to me is the point of it really so where people can find me yeah I do have a website it's terribly out of date it still praises Patabi <laughs> George for example that needs to be updated what about the music you've got your YouTube channel right yeah I've got YouTube channels and Facebook Nachos videos is the name it goes under great so um, yeah that's all there that's online that's a very yeah so this is why well, it's, it's all a part of you so yeah it gets all a part of me but in, t in terms of the yoga it tends to be basically about this program here the personal relationships great yeah thank you so much Nigel you're very welcome I've enjoyed it thank you very much <laughs> thanks I'm so grateful for this conversation with Nigel a teacher is someone kind and caring that holds a space for us to grow and transform ourselves in our yoga practice Power doesn't reside in a teacher. The power resides in ourselves, creating our own eternal strength. Leave a comment if you would like more insight on any of the topics we discuss. Practice with Nigel at Pure Yoga and check out his videos on Nacho Video. Be sure to visit interested.blog to join the conversation. Access the show notes and leave a comment or review. Subscribe to my podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. If you enjoyed this episode, Share it with your friends.